tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. To have someone sit across from you and tell you that they intentionally walked thousands of miles through some truly harsh conditions and that they did all of this because where they were living seemed hopeless. Two historical events that look eerily similar, the insurrection on the Capitol in 2021 and the days leading up to Abraham Lincoln's first inauguration 160 years earlier. There were actually crowds trying to get into the Capitol, just like on January 6th. There were unruly sort of drunken men swearing, trying to get in. But then inside, there were politicians giving speeches, denouncing the result. I don't like the way that musicians and marketing people have represented the black folk tradition as this like dead thing that exists in the past. If you don't have traditional black folk music, you don't get blues, you don't get jazz, you don't get gospel, you don't get rock and roll, you don't get punk, you don't get disco. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. As the new year begins, immigration remains one of the nation's thorniest political issues. And President Biden is expected to visit the U.S.-Mexico border this week. Here in New England, the issue gained new urgency this past September with the sudden arrival of 49 Venezuelan migrants on Martha's Vineyard, sent there from Texas by state officials in Florida. So how are those migrants doing? And what implications does this whole episode have on their hopes to remain in this country? Contributing reporter David Wright has the story. Martha's Vineyard slows down this time of year. The frenzy of summer, a distant memory. This picturesque island off the coast of Cape Cod is an unlikely landmark in America's immigration battle. But this past September, the vineyard was the front line. 48 Venezuelan migrants, the youngest only three years old, flown to Martha's Vineyard Wednesday, will spend another night at a local church. On an ordinary Wednesday in September, wedding season on island, 49 Venezuelan migrants suddenly turned up on Martha's Vineyard like gate-crashing guests. They were brought here on two private planes, and when they got to the vineyard, there was transportation and a camera crew waiting for them. They basically brought them over here to the high school and dropped them off. Lured with promises of help finding jobs, housing and other assistance, homemade brochures to back up the lies. This is not even a flag of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The two flights chartered from Texas by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis using funds intended for COVID relief to pay for them. We are not a sanctuary state and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction and yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. They were all exhausted and incredibly confused. Lisa Belcastro was one of the first responders on scene. She runs the island's homeless shelter. They didn't even know they were coming to Martha's Vineyard in the first place. And, you know, they, they wanted to know where were their jobs and where were their houses? Because that's what they were told. And, you know, we're, we're looking at them going, 
there, there are no jobs and there are no houses. We used every space available. They set up camp in St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Edgartown, and they set to work. We couldn't change, obviously, their journey to get to the border. We couldn't change what DeSantis and his people did so cruelly to them. But we could start from square one on the vineyard. Attorney Rachel Self has an immigration law practice in Boston, but lives year-round on the vineyard. I got to the church and immediately started to look over the documentation. They had been processed by the Department of Homeland Security. They had their paperwork, and they were supposed to report in to various offices throughout the country in very short order. She and others helped make sure the Venezuelans didn't miss any crucial immigration appointments because they were stranded on Martha's Vineyard. To have someone play with you, like a pawn on a chessboard, completely disposable, I, I can't imagine that. If DeSantis's goal was to test the virtue signaling of America's liberal elite. And all those people in D.C. and New York were beating their chests when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk. Martha's Vineyard stepped up in a big way. We started a um, GoFundMe through community services. $280,000 came in virtually overnight? Within, I don't know, 36, 40 hours. Wow. Yeah. Yep. People wanted to help. But judging from some of the hate messages everyone who helped them received. There are plenty of Americans who applaud Governor DeSantis. I hope they flood your community. I hope they flood and bring drugs and crap to your community. This whole episode teed up what's bound to be a central issue in the 2024 presidential campaign. The Venezuelans, among thousands of others, caught in America's broken immigration system. This experience did bring that problem home to the vineyard in a stark new way. The whole concept of fleeing a country was foreign to me. Like, we hear about it in the news and, you know, you see the wars on TV and poverty and everything else, but to have someone sit across from you and tell you that they intentionally walked thousands of miles through some truly harsh conditions and that they did all of this because where they were living seemed hopeless or dangerous. Truth be told, the vineyard has a sizable immigrant population, many of them Brazilian. Adil Jr. Barbosa works at the Oak Bluffs Public Library. He's a new citizen, having been sponsored by his wife, who was born here. He told us the Brazilian community was intrigued by all the support the islanders gave the Venezuelans. Of course, everybody's pretty happy that they had somebody to look for them. That's awesome. But we have been here for a long time, and we don't have the same kind of help. Um, so it's not that you begrudge them the help but that you'd like to see that help yourselves. Yes, we didn't have the same help that these people did. But obviously we're all so hell glad that they have some help and somebody looked for them. We expected people look to us now too in the same way. Of the 49 Venezuelans who were brought here to Martha's Vineyard, 
only half a dozen or so are still on the island. The rest have scattered to other towns on the mainland. They all now face a tough road seeking asylum, and there are no guarantees. Jose, not his real name, lives for now in a small town in southern Massachusetts. We've agreed not to say where. A comfortable spot, food and shelter well met, heat and hot water included. What would you like to be doing? He wants to work, he says. But under U.S. law, he can't even apply for a work permit for six months. The biggest question I get asked by all 49 of them, because they all have my cell phone and we stay in very close contact, um, is when can I work? I really just want to get to work. And the problem is that in order to lawfully work in this country, you need to have an employment authorization document issued by the Department of Homeland Security. So this is a federal document that gives them authorization to work and they just have to wait for it. Yes, and in the interim what happens is a lot of people go underground. Realistically, she says, that probably means a two-year wait getting a work permit, probably 10 years to get a judge to rule on his asylum claim. And in that 10 years, are they in danger of being deported? Not in Massachusetts. Jose told us that staying in Venezuela wasn't safe. He says his family supported the Venezuelan opposition and that after the opposition lost the most recent election, thugs started paying his family regular visits. When he was working for his aunt's business, he was assaulted and stabbed one morning. On December 15th. Last year. Hmm. They stabbed you. She was called by his name, and when he looked up, he was stabbed. Eventually, he says he fled for his life to Peru. But he says Peru wasn't safe either. So, just as soon as he was well enough to travel, he set off on foot for the U.S. border. Two months and 15 days walking. His only treasured possessions, the stuffed animals his son and daughter gave him. The Venezuelans have filed a class action lawsuit against Governor DeSantis. No federal investigation has been launched yet with regard to the fact that they were kidnapped. I believe they kidnapped were... Kidnapped is a very strong word. It is, but there is kidnapping by inveiglement, which basically means you lie to somebody to get them. So picture, if you will, the CBS afternoon special of the dangerous man with the ice cream cone or the puppy in the van. This was the immigration equivalent of the puppy in the van. I believe it was the immigration equivalent of the puppy in the van, yes. With help from the San Antonio Sheriff, all 49 have been certified as victims of crime, unlawful restraint. That's a qualifying crime for something called a U visa. So when you apply for a U visa, the government will certify that you were the victim of a crime. And the reason this visa exists is so that Victims of crime aren't afraid to come forward and assist law enforcement in their investigation of criminal activity. And she says ultimately the Florida governor may have done the opposite of what he was hoping to achieve. So the fact that these 49 people have been certified as victims of a crime mm -hmm. puts them in a different category in terms of their immigration. It does. The irony of the actions of the operators in Florida is that they actually provided them a path to green card by victimizing them.
Up next, as we mark the two-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we take another look at the violent attack on the Capitol and how it exposed deep divisions within the country. A Rhode Island-based historian says the insurgency is reminiscent of another dark time in American history that unfolded more than a century ago. Abraham Lincoln had just won the presidency, and the nation was on the verge of a civil war. He's moving very fast, and if he slows down too much, he becomes vulnerable again, because when he's standing still is when someone can get close to him with um, bad intent. That fast-moving man was Abraham Lincoln, on board a train headed to his inauguration in Washington, D.C. Historian and Rhode Island-based author Ted Widmer spent years combing through newspaper articles and research retracing Lincoln's 13-day journey starting in Illinois. I went into a deep vortex, almost like time travel, and I would go anywhere I could find out a shred of information about anything that happened to Abraham Lincoln during these 13 days. It was February of 1861. Lincoln was receiving daily death threats over his opposition to slavery. Seven states had already seceded from the Union, and the nation was on the cusp of a civil war. You write a great deal about how there was a lot at stake as Lincoln made his way toward Washington, D.C. What was at risk? Well, the survival of democracy, basically, um, and a kind of principled democracy that really believed in the, the worth of every individual. So if this form of self-government is going to survive. We need a strong United States of America to show people how it's done. In Lincoln on the Verge, Widmer follows the president-elect's 1,900-mile route through the capitals of Indiana, Ohio, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, states that had elected him. In the North, there is hope that he will come in and be a strong president, but there's a lot of anxiety. There, there has never been a president from this party. It's a brand new party called the Republican Party. And the idea that a new kind of a president is coming in and may get rid of slavery or will somehow inhibit the spread of slavery, that's scary to Northerners too, including in Rhode Island, because there are Northerners with extensive economic interests in the, in the South. But in the South, it's much worse than anxiety. It's really hatred. He is built up in the southern press as a kind of monster. As Lincoln was en route to Washington, his rival Jefferson Davis was rushing toward his own inauguration in Montgomery, Alabama. Widmer describes it as a race between two competing philosophies. Widmer says digging through this chapter of Lincoln's life was a labor of love, and his passion for history is evident and on display in his home on the east side of Providence, from his collection of old maps to this portrait of Lincoln. Something about him has always attracted me the way it attracts millions of Americans, something in the sadness of the face and, the, you know, the uh, incredible story. You know, we talk about rags to riches and, and the American dream, but no one ever 
came from as obscure a background and achieved as much as, as Abraham Lincoln. He literally saved our country. Many people saw Lincoln for the first time during his inaugural train ride to D.C. He stopped in eight states, ultimately shaking thousands of hands. But that trip could be viewed as a foreshadowing of what was to come. At the very beginning of the trip, there was a device found on the track, even in Illinois, near the border with Indiana, on the very first day that someone had put there to cause some mayhem. It was found by uh, um, people looking ahead on the route, and so the danger was removed. But then in Cincinnati, a couple days later, a bag was placed with an explosive device in Lincoln's car moments before he got onto the train, and it was found and removed. There were dangers at every corner, including a plot to kill him in Baltimore. Still, Lincoln gave about 100 speeches throughout the trip on and off the train. To shore up democracy, writes Widmer, Lincoln needed to speak every time that a crowd formed near his train. He's walking a tightrope. He knows he is facing real danger. He's been informed about this plot and every day they're getting more information about it. So he's literally heading into the jaws of danger. I mean, he's heading toward Baltimore. There's no way he can get to Washington without going through Baltimore. Um, but he also just has an intuitive sense that he's got to get out there and talk about America and talk about himself and sell the idea of the Lincoln presidency to a public that still feels a lot of doubt and anxiety before he has even become president. As the president-elect was traveling through Ohio, Congress was meeting to certify the results of the 1860 election. But Widmer says it was a fraught day as Lincoln haters tried to disrupt the count. There were actually crowds trying to get into the Capitol, just like on January 6th. There were unruly sort of drunken men swearing, trying to get in. But then inside, there were politicians giving speeches, denouncing the result, just like we saw on January 6th. There were fears that Congress might take over the election. A lot of power lay in the hands of Vice President John C. Breckinridge, a pro-Southern candidate who also ran against Lincoln. He's the one who's in charge of counting the, the electoral votes. And he refused to cheat. He's kind of like Mike Pence in this story. He refused to cheat, and he presided over an honest count that declared Lincoln the president-elect. Widmer's book was published in 2020, nine months before the insurrection on the Capitol. As he watched the attack unfold, Widmer was struck by the similarities between that day and the days leading up to Lincoln's inauguration. One of the moving parts of my book was that ordinary people started walking around the Capitol to defend it in the days when they felt that there might be a pro-Southern takeover of the Capitol before Lincoln even got there. And people like firemen, blacksmiths, just sort of, you know, the working people of Washington, D.C. did not want to see a coup happen in their city. I mean, they're, it's where they're from. And they came out and sort of patrolled around the Capitol to keep an eye on it. And we need to be the same way in 2022. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney read Widmer's book before the attack on the Capitol. The lifelong Republican lost her congressional seat after sitting on the House January 6th committee. 
I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. Widmer says Cheney recently called him to talk about the book. She worried about what might have happened had the Capitol rioters gotten their hands on the boxes containing the electoral votes. Her political intelligence is so sharp, she knew that was a weak point in our system and that we needed to be really careful on the day of the counting of the electoral vote. So she said my book gave her some foreknowledge that was very valuable to her that day. It's been more than 160 years since Lincoln's inaugural train ride, but Widmer hopes that what happened back then continues to resonate today. What's the main thing you want readers to take from your book? I want them to look at Lincoln as a flesh and blood human being, not someone we see in a statue or a painting and can't connect to. He was very brave and stood up for his country when his country needed him. And from those understandings of Lincoln, I hope we can all for ourselves find some of those same qualities. January 6th showed how fragile our very strong country actually is. And so we all need to stand up individually, but also helping each other. And I think we'll be a better country if we do that. Finally, the Ocean State has long been a haven for folk music. The Newport Folk Festival has hosted the biggest names of the genre, including Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and Johnny Cash since its inaugural season in 1959. But tonight, in our continuing My Take series, we explore the often forgotten history of black folk music with the help of Providence-based musician Jake Blunt. <laughs> My name is Jake Blunt and this is my take on black folk music. Black folk music is important because it's the bedrock of every major American musical export. If you don't have traditional black folk music, you don't get blues, you don't get jazz, you don't get gospel, you don't get rock and roll, you don't get any of the things that came out of rock and roll, you don't get punk, you don't get disco, you don't get house. We have a spotty historical record when it comes to black folk musicians and they're our contribution to the canon and there's a lot of restoration of the historical narrative that we have to do. I'm a poor old railroad man. In the early 1900s we start to see white record executives go down into the south and they begin to market white musicians from the south as hillbilly musicians. They made hillbilly records. Uh, and that is what we would generally consider early country music, early folk music, stuff in that vein. And black musicians were recorded uh, making race records, and those tended to be early blues and jazz. And that meant that these genres, which had been all together, fed into one another for so long, 
wound up splitting apart because there was a financial incentive for them to do so. And they split apart, not across sonic lines, but across race lines. You had to make a certain type of music or else nobody would record you. Nobody would sell your stuff. You wouldn't be able to play gigs. There are some prominent white artists from Hillbilly Records back in the day whose work we know now who learned a lot of what they did from black musicians. One example would be the Carter family. And A.P. Carter, father of that family, uh, traveled around collecting songs with a disabled black man named Leslie Riddle, who taught them a good deal of their repertoire, likely heavily influenced, if not completely taught, Maybelle Carter her guitar style. He never got recorded until decades later and, you know, is playing some of the same music, but it gets categorized under blues and not country. I don't like the way that musicians and marketing people and scholars have represented the black folk tradition as this like dead thing that exists in the past. I like to incorporate traditional repertoire in the things that I'm doing now. My new album is called The New Faith. It's an Afrofuturist concept album that explores what black religious music might sound like in a post-climate crisis world. So it's set a few hundred years in the future and uses music all the way from a few hundred years into the past. Once there was no it feels like sitting down with somebody who I don't know and them sharing something that's really personal and there is a unifying feeling in that, that we're sharing something because we know it's important to pass on and we know it's important for the next person to have. I don't know who I am without this music. For black people, these songs are the oldest texts that we have. They come out of a time and a place where people were legally not permitted to learn to read and write, much less encouraged to honestly convey their thoughts <laughs> in, a, in a recorded medium. The songs are the only thing that I have to tell me what my ancestors wanted from me and how I'm supposed to think about the world even as it exceeds the bounds of my influence. My name is Jake Blunt and this was my take on black folk music. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you and good night.